The following is an audio recording of Narrative Admits the Activities of Scripture by Professor Charles Hallisey of Harvard Divinity School. Recorded on April 18th, 2014 at the Institute of Buddhist Studies Numata Symposium, Narrative in Buddhist Texts, Practice, and Transmission. A response by Professor Mark Blum of the University of California, Berkeley follows. Well, good morning, everyone. I'd like to thank you very much for your patience and understanding. Uh, we'd like to begin this year's Numata Symposium, and uh, we want to th- begin by thanking all of you for attending today. Uh, today's a very uh, important day. We know in this, uh, our uh, Western Judeo-Christian culture, it's Good Friday, uh, and we appreciate you spending this good day with us, uh, listening uh, uh, to some wonderful and outstanding speakers uh, who will be uh, uh, presenting a variety of perspectives on the topic of narrative in Buddhist texts practice and transmission. Uh, I will, uh, my re- opening remarks were supposed to last for 15 minutes and now they will, they have now concluded. Um, so I'd like to direct your attention to the handout uh, regarding uh, Professor Hallisey's talk. The title of his talk is Narrative uh, Amidst the Activities of Scripture. And he'll consider how narrative is a part of the human activity of scripture with many of the examples drawn from Shin Buddhist materials including the three Pure Land Sutras and Shinran's Gatha of Trushinjin and the Nembutsu, the Shoshinge. Uh, so without further ado, uh, please welcome uh, Dr. Charles Hallisey from the Harvard Divinity School. First, I'd just like to thank Richard Payne and David Matsumoto for making it possible for me to be here for uh, a symposium on narrative and uh, Buddhist literature. Uh, and just say that I'm looking forward to the whole day today. Now, it's been 25 years since Wilfred Campbell Smith made his observation that we scholars do not know what a scripture is. This is, in some sense, that statement is somewhat surprising, and it, it may be difficult to take in. Smith observed that most of us hear the word scripture without stumbling over it, even to ourselves. Or using it, we give the, the impression, even to ourselves, that there is an understanding of what the term scripture means, that we all know a, what a scripture is. But on reflection, it turns out that this is hardly the case. Smith then went on to make the point further that the matter is altogether, that the question of what a scripture is, that the matter is altogether more elaborate uh, than we have supposed, the questions are deeper and the solutions more far-ranging. These words of Smith, that we scholars do do not know what a a scripture is, provide the frame of reference for my talk this morning. In saying that the matter is altogether more elaborate than we have supposed, Wilford Cantwell Smith signaled that the issue at hand was more than how certain texts attained authoritative status, what we might call uh, canon formation. Uh, but that the reality of scripture has been more elaborate than tracing the accounts of canon formation. And part of what I want to do this morning is to look at, in particular, how narrative helps us to see certain aspects of what scripture may be as a human activity. One of the things that Smith emphasized again and again is that the reality of scripture, cross-culturally, globally, uh, is that it's been more varied than the, the word scripture might suggest. This is more varied in two different ways. One is that 
the range of texts that have been, become scriptures in different communities are more varied than we might anticipate. But then also the ways that people have interacted with scriptures have been more varied than the idea of a canon might lead us to expect. Smith then turned our attention in another direction, which he said the quality of being scripture is not an attribute of text. It is a characteristic of persons or a group of persons to what, else, to what outsiders perceive as text. It denotes a relation between a people and a text. Just one point to emphasize, because it's one of the things we stumble over. We may think that what scriptures are are a certain category of text. What Smith is saying, that it's not an attribute or a contour of text, but it's an attribute of persons in relationship to text. And that one of the mistakes that we make is to perceive scriptures as text rather than the activity of persons interacting with text. Now, what I want to do is to illustrate the task at hand for us in terms of looking at narrative with it amidst the uh, activities of scripture by looking at two examples that are taken from Shinran and Ryojin Soga, two great thinkers of Jodo Shinshu who are separated by nine centuries. Soga, of course, is a 20th century thinker. Both belong to the same school. Both read the same practical canon of Buddhist texts of the three Pure Land Sutras. One, uh, looked, one, Soga, looked to the other as teacher and forebear, founder of the school. And both knew the story of Amitabha, the narrative of Amitabha, as told in the Pure Land Sutras. But when we turn to Tanisho, and we hear uh, Shinran being recorded as saying, when I consider deeply the vow of Amida, which arose from five kalpas of profound thought, I realized that it was entirely for the sake of myself alone. Then how I am filled with gratitude for the primal vow in which Amida settled on saving me, though I am burdened thus with karma. We can compare this with something that Soga says, an essay that he published early in the 20th century on a savior on, called A Savior on Earth. So he begins that essay by saying, towards the beginning of July last year, which was 1912, at the home of my friend Kaneko in Takada, I intuited the words, the Tathagata is myself. Then towards the end of August, this time at Akegadasu's place in Kaga, I was handed the phrase, the Tathagata becoming me saves me. Finally, around October, it dawned on me that when the Tathagata becomes myself, it signals the birth of Dhammakara Bodhisattva. This may not mean much to other people, but for me, who for 20 years had been plagued by sickness and worldly worries, and who had not understood the meaning of the scriptures on this point, even though I made it my task to read from them daily, the insight I received made me feel as if I were handed a torch that all of a sudden lit up a room that had been kept in darkness for a thousand years. I lacked the capacity to express that feeling but could not keep it to myself either. Thus, from October of last year, I have set forth part of it in a series of short pieces in a Buddhist journal called The Tempest, 
And also in January of 1913, issue of the journal Inexhaustible Light, I published an article entitled, The Present Monk Dharmakara as the Revealer of the Eternal Buddha Mind. I am overwhelmed by the many expressions of sympathy and demands for further explanation, which I receive from friends in the Dharma far and near, just as I am still surprised by the boldness and assertiveness of my own thought. What we can say is that both uh, Shinran and Soga are surprised by the boldness and the assertiveness of their own thought. But just to see what, how, what the boldness and the assertiveness is. Shinran is saying that Dhammakara became Amitabha for him alone. And Soga is saying, I am Dhammakara. Now, those, the, this is the puzzle. Both of them are reading the same sutras. Both of them know the same interpretations. Soga knows what Shinran has said, but they're poles apart in terms of the way that they understand the narrative. And what we can also take from Soga is the way that he ends on the note of surprise, that I am still surprised by the boldness and assertiveness of my thought. You could say that probably, we don't have any record of it, but Shinran was also surprised by the boldness and the assertiveness of saying that Dharmakara became Buddha for me alone. This is a very important point for me this morning, this surprise. The surprise at the boldness and assertiveness of the thought. What, we might, what I might signal, the, the importance of it is to say that texts, including narratives, mean they have meanings attached to them, meanings that people encounter. But that scriptures ramify. And what they do is that they ramify into people's lives. They surprise people. They're, they are taken aback by it. And it has unexpected consequences. But part of what we want to understand is, and this is Smith's challenge to us, how the same narrative, the same scripture, could ramify in so many different ways, such that Shinran would say that uh, Dhammakara became Buddha for me alone, and Soga would say, uh, I am Dhammakara. Now, we have to admit that since Smith made his observation a quarter of a century ago that we scholars do not know what a scripture is, there has been a lot of insightful scholarship on scriptures. And we have learned quite a lot. So this is not to say that the topic has been ignored. But what we can say is that as people have tried to figure out, well, how are we going to think about scriptures? What we have found, as Smith foresaw, that the problem is more elaborate than we anticipated. And that uh, it goes into more areas than we thought. Smith's great suggestion that I am beginning with is that we approach the study of scripture by seeing scripture as a human activity and not as a text. And I believe that that still stands. But perhaps we have to consider that it's not a unique, sui generis human activity, but that it is one that's overlapping with other activities. And the other is to say that it is a compound activity. What I mean by that is that we can say that eating is an activity, 
But when we look at it closely, we see that it's a compound activity involving biting, chewing, savoring, swallowing, smelling, all kinds of other things. So that each part of this one activity of eating requires us to look at a whole range of other activities at the same time. This is the case of looking at narrative amidst the activities of scripture. That certain things that happen in the engagement with narratives in scriptures are part of the larger activity itself. And what I want to focus on is how some of these activities of engaging narrative are contributing to larger uh, issues in the phenomenon, the human phenomenon uh, of scripture. Now, the other lesson I just want to uh, emphasize at the beginning, taken from Smith, of saying that we scholars do not know what a scripture is, is to say that it creates a certain opportunity for us in terms of what we may turn to Buddhist materials for. It's not only that we're trying to develop better ideas for understanding scriptures among Buddhists, but it may be that by turning to what Buddhists say about their use of scriptures, we find better ideas that will teach us about how to think about scriptures. Another way of putting it, it's not that the task at hand is to see how Buddhists saw their own scriptures, but rather to receive from their, their resources, their own engagements with scriptures, better ways for how we should see scriptures, Buddhist and otherwise. Smith added to the idea that scripture is uh, activity, in which he said it is a relational activity. It is always something that's involving more than one thing. Obviously, this is between a person and a text. But he added something more, in which he said the scripture is a relational activity that brings together a person, a text, and transcendence. And so that three-way activity is what he said, almost in a mathematical formula, adds up to scripture. I think that we see some echo, some foreshadowing of Smith's insight in the fifth century Chinese commentator on the Lotus Sutra, Daoshan. At the opening of his commentary, he asks the question, what is, we could translate it as scripture, it is, what is, Qing? It takes up the, what we say the literal meaning of the word ching that's related to the Sanskrit uh, term sutra, of thread. It connects it to the literal meaning of the, of the Chinese word ching and sees it as the warp of the this, this strings put onto a loom. So he says the warp, the ching, the warp set on a loom, and the woof of the world refers to uncolored silk. Uh, one of the things to just say is that, at least in the translation, uh, an ambiguity here. Because it's a way of reading a sentence, in which we say the warp and the woof, in the way that is normally understood in the world, refers to uh, weaving uncolored silk. You could also read it as the warp of the scripture and the woof of the world in which these two things are being woven together. And when we take it that way, in addition to the first way, we come very close to what Wilfred Smith is pointing to 
text and person, person in the world are being woven together. The warp and the woof, as referred to here, meaning in the, the scripture, the Lotus Sutra, would manifest their true illumination on those who cultivate this scripture. So then what we would have in rephrasing this observation of Daoshan to see that it's echoing what Smith is pointing to. The warp, the ching, the text is combined with woof, persons, the, to manifest enlightenment, which we say transcendence there. And what we could say is oh, it's what's happening when we think about how weaving works, that when uh, the warp and the woof are put together and woven together, patterns emerge, things that are, that are well, able to stand when they're woven together and not useful when they're separate. Uh, all of that occurs uh, in the weaving together of person and text to create a scripture such that an illumination starts to appear. I think also we see a similar understanding of a text becoming scripture in a certain activity in Shinran's Kyogyo Shinsho when he is answering objections to some of the things that he is teaching, giving advice to followers on how they might answer, in which he says, the teachings and practices taught by the Buddhas outnumber even particles of, or grains of sand. This is one of the things we see in Wilfred Smith, that the variety of things that count as scripture is part of the problem of just how many things that are there. And he says, the opportunities and conditions of beings, here with Smith is persons, the opportunities and conditions of beings for encountering them differ according to their hearts and minds. To illustrate concerning even what ordinary people can see with the eyes and believe, there is light dispersing darkness, space enveloping all things, the earth bearing and nurturing, water bringing forth and nourishing, heat element ripening and consuming. Such elements are all turned elements with corresponding functions. They can be observed with the eye with a thousand differences and a, and a myriad variations. How much more is this so with the inconceivable power of the Buddha Dharma? Does it not benefit us in a variety of ways? This is just the emphasis on the variety that's there, but that's not what is important for Shinran. He goes on, in which he says, to emerge from one gateway is to emerge from one gateway of blind passion. To enter one gateway according to your opportunities and conditions is to enter one gateway of emancipation wisdom. To paraphrase this to say is that the same text can be read in one way in which it's just blind passion. It can be read in another way in which it is emancipation and wisdom. The text is the same, but the way that the person enters it is different, and therefore the, the, uh, the warp itself would be changed by what woof is put into it. In this way, you should undertake practices in accord with your opportunities and conditions and seek emancipation. Shinran says, you should say to others, why do you obstruct and confuse me with what is not the essential practice corresponding to my conditions? What I desire is the practice corresponding to my conditions. That is not what you seek. What you desire is the practice of corresponding to your conditions. That is not what I seek. 
each person's performance of practices in accord with his aspirations and failingly leads to rapid emancipation. Myself, I would say, oh, that Shinran, Daoshan, and Smith are all in accord. That something happens to a text by the way of some activity that a person is entering into it, and that this is something that we could say emerges to people as they enter into a text, such that something that wasn't there before is produced. Now, a topic of narrative amidst the activities of scripture is to say among all the different uh, activities that are connected to scriptures, or to scripturing, I want to look at some of the things that narrative itself, narratives within scriptures, narratives outside of scriptures that are talking about them, how the activities of narrative, what is involved in narrative, uh, how that connects to the, the activity, the process of scripture. One of the things that just make a distinction, we can refer to activities that are self-conscious and intentional, that people are doing with an idea, this is what I need to do. There are other activities that we can say are informal and not intentional. People somehow learn them without knowing that they're learning them. For myself, some of the key activities of narrative belong to these informal practices. Things that we know how to do and do automatically without paying attention to the fact that we are doing it. Uh, but it's key to how narratives work in our lives. So just let me list four of them. It's no, by no means exhaustive. Activities that we do in engaging a narrative, whether listening to a narrative being told or reading, one is identifying with characters in the, in the story. All of us know that the story of the tigress Jataka, where the future Buddha sacrifices his life for the a starving tigress mother, the story means something different if you identify with the, the future Buddha having to give up his, his body or you identify with the tigress who's having someone sacrifice for you. The story takes on a completely different significance according to how that, that identification works. Narrative as an activity depends on us filling things in. We are always adding things. The mental state of characters, we're visualizing things. Uh, the great Buddhist novelist of the 20th century, Sri Lanka, referred to the necessity in reading narratives to see with the mind's eye. And what oftentimes you're seeing things that are not in the text itself, but is part of the way that the text is becoming alive to you before you know it. That visualization is that also the text begins to become alive for you. And you can make it uh, even more of uh, seeing with the mind's eye in terms of practices in which you begin to uh, see yourself in the scenes that's being described in the narrative. One of the things we might just point out to is that in the teachings in the Visualization Sutra about how to visualize you know, Amitabha for the sake of a practice of going to the Pure Land, that the actual practices of visualization have begun as soon as you're reading the story, long before you make the intention to practice visualization. 
but the, the specific details of the sutra that are telling you what things look like and you start to see with your mind's eye, you're already engaged in visualization before you know that you are. The other is practice of implodding, which you're saying, oh, these things are going together for this kind of connection between things. One suggestion that I have is that these informal activities, informal practices, that we can't remember being taught. We just know how to do them, it seems. But it's part of what makes us capable of reading narratives, that they are key to the ability of scripture to ramify. How is it that scripture can ramify into our lives in which it, it has su surprises and unanticipated consequences for us is that we're already pouring important portions of our lives into uh, the, the narratives as we're reading them. Now, let me point to one thing about paying attention to uh, narratives in the activity of scripture. In one sense, narratives are different from other things that we find in scriptures. Uh, so that not all of the scriptures, could we say, are narratives. But that's to say that there are certain demands made on us for reading narratives that are different than reading other aspects of scriptures. But in the treatment of uh, scriptures, what we often find is that the same practices of reading that are generic to reading scriptures are applied to narratives as well. One of these I'll refer to as dissociation. And what I mean by this is fragmentation. One of the features, cross-culturally, but particularly in the Buddhist world, is a way of reading sutras, scriptures, in which I would say they're characterized by a radical and repeated fragmentation, a radical and repeated dissociation. Commentators and readers are focusing on word by word, sometimes letter by letter. In uh, Kuichi's commentary on the Heart Sutra, in which he, early on he just picks up that it refers to uh, Avalokiteshvara practicing, that he focuses on the word practice, and half of his commentary becomes about practice, uh, in which he's unable to move beyond that one word. So this practice of dissociation as a way of reading that separates individual parts from the whole is a key activity in the engagement with uh, scriptures. You can see that this is happening in the narrative of uh, Dharmakata and Amitabha from Soga. Soga says in the same essay, A Savior on Earth, in which he says, to be honest, this figure of Dhammakara Bodhisattva has for a long time been a big concept that I did not know what to do with. Of course, I do not understand either the meaning of a paradise myriads of miles to the west, but as a person who cannot consider the present world as a paradise, I cannot but surrender to the idea of the paradise in the west. There were very like, frank discussions in which he said, oh, this is a, this is a big, big concept that I just had nothing to do with. He says, I cannot, when he says, I can't accept that this world, that the pure land is in this world, so I have to accept this other thing that I can't accept either. He says, however, I could not believe 
and did not think I had any obligation to believe in the figure of Dharmakara Bodhisattva, the primal vow he took after five eons of reflection and the impossibility of impossibly long period he is supposed to have devoted to ascetic practice in order to gain merits for the salvation of all. In my childhood, and hearing the passage about him in the hymn of true faith, Shoshinge, I was moved without really understanding. And then this line. Indeed, simple believers are often moved to tears by the mere words, five eons of reflection. So what you can see in this is that his emphasis, uh, uh, people are moved to tears just on hearing the words, five eons of reflection is what I mean by dissociation. Lifting the, the phrase out and <coughs> fragmenting it all from the larger narrative of the story of Dharmakara and, and integrating it into another whole, which is my life. To say, oh, this five eons, I move to tears by it, not because of its place in the plot. Rome wasn't built in a day. Dharmakara didn't become Amitabha overnight. It took a long time. But then the other is that, oh, and it's connected that he did this for me, or this is what I'm going to have to do. That a different pattern of uh, uh, reaction occurs. Larger lesson that we can take from this is to say that this practice, this activity of dissociation, of fragmenting scriptures into parts in which the parts never gets come to an end, there's always more parts that you can make, is one of the ways that we see an infinite number of holes become possible. And then this is part of the activity that allows us to say, oh, this is how scriptures mean so many different things and ramify in so many different ways because the parts keep on be being fragmented off and connected into different kinds of holes. What I said before, is that key to how narrative works, all narratives, is a process of filling in. That the narrative never tells us enough about what's going on. We're always needing to add things in order to make sense of what the narrative is doing. Most importantly, uh, in narratives, when we're allowed in narratives to see the world through another person's eyes, how they're making choices, how a character is making choices, and we feel to be on the inside of another person, part of what we're filling in is how the mind of the character, how the mind of another person works. One place where we see this occurring in a narrative is in the narrative about Ajata Shatru that's in the Visualization Sutra, the Contemplation Sutra, early on, in which the basic, uh, to summarize the basic point is that Ajata Shatru is overthrowing his father, has imprisoned him, uh, not willing to kill him directly, he's trying to deprive him of food so he will just naturally die. Uh, Ajata Shatru is uh, wife, his queen, by day he is allowed to visit him and she is coating her body with food that, that Bimbisara, uh, the, so, I'm sorry, it's the father's queen, by day he, who is visiting her husband, she coats her body with food in which he licks it off of her body uh, and that's how he's staying alive. 
when Ajata Shatru finds out about that, he's enraged at his mother and uh, decides to kill her because she has turned on him. Jivaka, one of his advisors, advises against it, in which he says that over the course of history, there have been many kings who have killed their fathers, but there's not a known king who has uh, killed his mother. And Jivaka says that if you did this, we could not stay with you. We could not be your uh, ministers, attend on you. When he says this, I have to demonstrate it. So the text describes that Jivaka puts his hands on his sword. This is one of the things where we need to see this with the mind's eye, on uh, which we see the gesture and then we fill it in. And what we probably do is to say he is putting his hand on the sword to kill Ajata Shatru because of what he is saying he is going to do. In the narrative, it's clear that Ajata Shatru thinks so too, in which he addresses Jivaka and he says, will you not be friendly to me? In which he sees it as a threat. Jivaka then says to him, be rational and do not injure your mother. Ajata Shatru, you could say, this is not a rational persuasion. Out of fear, he repents. Now, just to call attention to this gesture, where Jivaka is just described as putting his hands on his uh, the scabbard of his sword. The commentator on the, the Chinese commentator, uh, Hui Yuan, from the sixth century, comments on that scene of what we're visualizing with the, our eyes. What he tells us is that Jivaka put his hands on the sword the way that he did is because those swords were big and they were sharp. And when you were moving, you had to hold them still so you yourself didn't get hurt. And if you swung around, the person near you didn't get hurt. So let me just point out the, the practice of dissociation that's happening. I fill it in with my mind's eye and I say he's going to draw the sword and hurt him, which is what uh, Ajata Shatru sees. I, I have this part and I integrate it into a larger whole of threat. Hui Huan takes it and he goes back to the part and integrates it into a larger whole of taking care of, protecting someone else. Now, that you say, or the practice of dissociation, then gives opportunities for filling in, in which we fill in what was in Jivaka's mind, the intent to harm, or the intent to, just the etiquette of taking care of, that everyone would always do. Everyone always held swords when they turned around. And so Hui Huan just turns it and pivots in another kind of direction. Uh, let me just point out a very kind of remarkable larger hole that happens here. It's clear from the narrative that Ajata Shatru thinks that Jivaka is going to hurt him. Hui Yuan says he, he wasn't going to hurt him. He was protecting him. So what we're told is Ajata Shatru misunderstood, filled in the wrong things in terms of what Jivaka was going to do. There's a lesson here that 
those of us as readers of narratives, and the characters of narratives are always filling things in. There's no place where we get to where there's not filling in. But what you have is that Ajata Shatru misunderstands what Jivaka is going to do. So he gets it wrong, according to Huayuan, but the result is a good one. He repents. So what you have then is a false understanding results in a right ramification. He gets the meaning wrong, but the ramification is right. And so then we could say, oh, this is a large scale lesson in the narrative about scriptures. It might be that someone reads a scripture in which the meaning is wrong, but the ramification, the consequences, the surprises that it has for their lives are, is correct. Now, I don't know about other people, for myself, that when I read the Contemplation Sutra and this story and the way the plot goes, that uh, Ajata Shatru, when he sees Jivaka reaching for his sword and, and says to him, will you not be friendly to me? That I agreed. I saw it as a way of a threat that Jivaka is making. Hui Huan, in his fra fragmenting the dissociation, forces me to revise what uh, I thought was going on, see it in another way. The meaning turns inside out. A very important kind of lesson for that the, the narrative is teaching. It's like a user's manual for scriptures, that what we have to do in some sense is to change what we thought something meant in favor of something else. This is a general activity of narrative. Narratives in general uh, require revisions of what we know as we find out things. This is one of the pleasures that all of us who read mystery novels know. That the way mystery novels are constructed is that small details are introduced in which we draw large-scale conclusions in which as we go on and we hear another detail, we revise the conclusion that we had. Narratives, the pleasures of narratives come from uh, that informal activity of revision making all the time. One of the, for me, one of the loveliest uh, of the Jataka stories, the, the stories of the Buddha's previous lives is one called Chadanta, this uh, Jataka, in which the future Buddha is a six tusk. That's where the name Chadanta comes from. Uh, what is surprising about it, compared to all the other Jataka, canonical Jataka verses in the Theravada, it's the only set of verses that's intelligible as a story without the commentarial story around it. The verses themselves uh, stand alone. Sri Lankan, uh, modern Sri Lankan commentators on the story have referred to it as a perfect story. The basic outline of the plot is simple. A queen has, is pregnant, she has pregnancy longings. She, her husband asks how if he can fulfill them. She says, there's this elephant, a white elephant who has six, six tusks. I would like his tusk to be brought to me. Uh -huh. So it's one of the things of where uh, a pregnancy longing of malevolence towards someone else, a kind of common plot trope and lots of South Asian stories. 
The king summons his hunters and they say to the queen, we've never heard of an elephant like this. Where is it? And she says, if you go to the seventh mountain, a series of mountains, you get to the seventh mountain and look back, you'll see him. It's a very strange location. When you're going to him, you'll walk right by him. But when you get beyond him and look back, you'll see him. It's a kind of meta-narrative statement. This is how narratives work. As we go reading a narrative, we miss what's important. But as we learn something later on, we look back and we reorganize what we know. What happens uh, uh, in, this, in the story, why it is a perfect story in some ways. The hunters go to where she told them to find him. They find him with his retinue, his herd of elephants. The hunter digs a pit and gets underneath. And when the elephant comes, he puts his spear up. And the elephant is fatally wounded. And in his rage, he uh, begins takes initiative to attack the hunter. But when he sees the hunter, he desists because he, the, we are told that the hunter is wearing the robes of a monk. We hadn't been told that before. But now we see, oh, this was part of how he crossed boundaries. The monks traveled in real life across international borders. And, and, or spies put on monks' robes to cross international borders so they wouldn't be stopped at immigration. Who, what are you up to? The king of the elephant says to the hunter, who put you up to this? And then the hunter explains about the pregnancy longing of the queen. And then the elephant, in rage, screams at him, she lies. She knows I'm not the only one who has tusks like this. She has seen my father and my grandfather. She lies. Hunter, the elephant dies. The hunter takes his tusks, brings them back to uh, the queen, gives them to her. And when she sees them, she's not happy. But instead, she immediately bursts into tears. And what becomes apparent by suggestion is that in a previous life, she and the elephant had been husband and wife. And it's out of something that happened between them then, in which everything in the story uh, kind of changes in terms of what we, how we make sense of this. We just say that Buddhist commentators, in telling their narratives, exploit this activity of narrative, demanding revision, uh, in the ways that they talk about scriptures themselves. One of the most dramatic. I would say most instructive for us is a story that the great Theravada Buddhist commentator Kasapa, uh, Buddhaghosa tells about the first council after the Buddha's death, about the monk who is, decides to hold the first council, named Mahakasapa. Mahakasapa is aware that without the Buddha, the, the order, these teachings are going to fall apart. He doesn't know what to do about it. He has a memory of things that the Buddha said to him during his life, including at one point, the Buddha said to him, Kasaba, do you want these old robes of mine? Do you want to wear them? Basic way of hearing it is, I have an extra pair of clothes. Can you use them? Which is what Kasaba took it at. In the new context, 
He understands that what the Buddha was saying to him is what a, a king does to his crown prince, in which he gives him some ornament of himself, in which he signals to the world, this is my successor, this is my crown prince. This is how you become. And so it wasn't just, I have extra pair of clothes. He was making uh, Kasava the successor. Kasava, when he first heard it, didn't know that. But when the world had changed, we might say the original meaning of what the Buddha was saying to him appeared. Before that, something else was different. You can say that we see this in terms of what I read from Soga as well, when he says that, uh, very honest, striking phrase, sincere, to be honest, this figure of Dhammakura Bodhisattva has been, a long been for a long time a big concept I did not know what to do with. But then something happens in which it becomes a big con uh, uh, concept that he wants to pay attention to. And when he begins to say, oh, I am the Tathagata, I am Dhammakura. And so what we want to say is that, oh, there's a total revision that's happening there that he's signaling. For a long time, it meant nothing. Now I understand what it means. Now, one other uh, feature of narratives, engaging narratives. Like I said before, that re engaging narratives in many ways depends on identification with characters. But not only that, there's also uh, uh, a way in which it's a question of when, where do I place myself in the story? How am I present in the story? This informal practice of placing oneself in the story shapes how we create plots for the story, in which we start to see that this, the point of the story is not only self-contained within its own narrative, but it, ha it reaches outside into another whole and generally, that other whole is my life. You can say that this way of, or this effect of narratives in which they kind of reach outside of themselves in the plot, in which they be begin to implot our own lives, in which we say the plot of the story is actually the story of my life, is known to Shinran. And when he takes up the story of the White Path in Kyogyo Shinsho, in which he describes uh, how the White Path works, but also the way that he uses it. Just to remind us of what the, pa what the parable is, uh, which Shinran says, I will now present a parable for practicers so that their Shinjin be protected from attacks by those of wrong or non-Buddhist views and of different opinions. What is the parable? Suppose there is a traveler journey, 100,000 lead toward the west, when suddenly along the way he comes upon two rivers in a single channel, one of fire extending southward and one of water extending north. Each river is 100 paces across, immeasurably deep and endless to the north and south. Dividing the fire and water is a single white path four or five inches wide. This path from the eastern bank to the western bank is 100 paces in length. Billows of water surge over the path and flames sweep up to scorch it. Water and fire thus alternate without break. Now the traveler has already journeyed deep into the vast and solitary wilderness. There is no one to be seen. 
But brands of, bands of brigands and wild beasts lurk there, and seeing the traveler alone, they vie with each other to kill him. Fearing for his life, the traveler at once flees toward the west, when without warning, the great river appears. He reflects, I can see no end to this river, either to north or south. In the middle is a white path, but it is exceedingly narrow. So the two banks are but slightly separated. How is it possible to cross? Surely this day I shall die. If I turn back, brigands and wild beasts will press closer and closer upon me. If I run north or south, beasts and poisonous insects will contend with each other to attack me. If I venture on the path westward, surely I will plunge into the two currents of water and fire. There are no words to express the terror and despair that fill him at this point. But he thinks further to himself, if I turn back now, I die. If I remain here, I die. If I go forward, I die. There's no way for me to escape death. Therefore, I choose to go forth, venturing on this path. Since this path exists, it must be possible to cross the rivers. When this thought occurs to him, he suddenly hears the encouraging voice of someone on the eastern bank, or traveler just resolved to follow this path forward. You will certainly not encounter the grief of death, but if you stay where you are, you will surely die. Further, someone on the western bank calls to him, O traveler with mind that is single, with right-mindedness, come at once. I will protect you. Have no fear of plunging to grief in the water of fire. Then the traveler, hearing the, having heard the exhortion on his side of the, of the river and the call from the other, immediately acquires firm resolution in body and mind, decisively takes this path, firmly directing without entertaining any doubt or apprehension. Uh, after this, Shinran turns this on, which he says, now to apply the parallel. And what he does, in a relatively formal way, just identifies who, what people are, uh, characters are. The voice on the eastern bank is Shakyamuni. The voice on the western bank is Amitabha. The person crossing the bridge is the individual reading the story. Uh, the brigands saying you're really going to die, a bit more complicated. It can be other people. It can be things inside yourself. But what you can start to see is that in that process of where you start to do things in which you say, oh, those brigands are members of my family. Those brigands are the people I work with. Those brigands are the voices inside of myself. That the story starts to ramify in different kinds of ways according to the way that I, I'm placing myself into the story and seeing how the story, in a certain sense, is reading me, and I'm not reading the story anymore. Uh, what we can see in this is something that, uh, using language that Paul Ricoeur has spoken about in terms of how narratives do things to human lives. They refigure them, change how we understand it. They can configure it. They can be a framework for understanding my life. They can prefigure what I expect my life to be like. Going back to the simple pair between Shinran and Soga, we might say that using this parable as a way of understanding the narrative of Dharmakata and Amitabha, that for Shinran, the narrative refigures his life. And it changes how he understands himself. He had all the feelings that surely I'm going to die, and then hears these voices that beckon him. For Soga, we might say that the narrative of Dharmakata 
prefigures his life. It is what he now expects to happen later on as he goes forward. Now, what we can say is that what happens is that the, the plot of the parable, a relatively simple one, it just change, gives a plot to readers' lives. But the possibilities of the activities of narrative mean there's not any one way that it will ramify into different lives. So this is the main point I want to emphasize. That text may mean things, but scriptures ramify. That they have surprising consequences in the lives of people as they engage text, such that people are transformed by it. Another last lesson. You can say that texts endure, but the ramifications that come from texts do not. They disappear. This is part of the complexity of studying scripture, because the evidence of ramifying is ephemeral. Very few people leave records of what a text meant to them, the way we had with Shinran and Soga. What we see with Soga in particular is that in any one lifetime, there will be a series of ramifying events that occur. Peter Gomes, who used to be the minister of the church at Harvard, writing about the Bible, but I think generally true of scriptures, said that the Bible is the kind of book that allows itself to change as you change. And so it's not that we see different things, but the book itself is changing as we weave our lives into it. way of maybe understanding this is something that we can get from the Zen teacher of medieval Japan, Dogen, what he says about the, what, talking about what he calls the Mountain and Rivers Sutra. So he says, from the distant past to the distant present, mountains have been the dwelling place of great sages. Of great sages. Wise men and sages have all made the mountains their chambers, their own body and mind. However, many great sages and wise men, we suppose, have assembled in the mountains. No one has met a single one of them. There is only the expression of the mountain way of life. One of the things that we might hope for in terms of studying the activities of scripture is that we could meet people who are living in those mountains and ask what it's about. But what Dogen said, about the mountains and rivers sutra is probably true of all sutras, all scriptures. No one meets them. No one meets people reflecting on the ramifications of texts in their lives, except in a few instances. There is only the expression of the mountain way of life. So when we say that scriptures ramify, they ramify in their surprises and their unanticipated consequences for persons. But the persons and those ramifications do not endure. What endures are the texts and then certain ways in which we can see the mechanisms, the activities that are always available and shifting for persons that the scriptures can continue to uh, ramify. In a way that just with uh, Dogen we say, can say, from the distant past to the distant present, uh, scriptures have been the dwelling place of the great sages. And we can say that into the distant future as well, that they have the capacity to continue to ramify in ways that we have not witnessed before. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much, Dr. Hallisey. Let me introduce to you uh, Dr. Mark Blum of the University of California at Berkeley. He is the respondent for today's talk, and he will also uh, make some comments and, and lead uh, our discussion. So thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. I just want to comment that, uh, for me, a very distinct pleasure in terms of uh, configuring my experience right now, I'm recalling the expression, sitting at the right hand of God. <laughs> <laughs> short remarks and I want to read a narrative to you, a short one. What is impressive to me about Buddhist narrative in particular, and, and of course Charlie was alluding to this, is uh, not only that we find ourselves in it and the narrative moves as we move, but, but in fact sometimes the narratives between sutras, between texts, um, also creates another phenomenon, kind of epiphenomenon. And, and of course this is not something that people didn't notice. So and I'm often struck by uh, narratives that do that in a way that is really jarring. And this suggests to us what scholars call intertextuality, that in fact one text is incorporating another text consciously. Uh, and that often from looking at this many, many years later, we don't necessarily know how that process occurred. But when we see something happening like this, then we have to think, aha, they're also going through their own response to the narrative and feeling that they have to respond. And sometimes the response to the narrative is to create another narrative uh, that um, makes it perhaps more perplexing, maybe responds to something in the original narrative that they felt needed to be responded to or was unclear, or maybe they wanted to take a completely different position uh, that changed things entirely. Um, and so the, that's the one second part. The second point I want to make is about the relation between narrative and myth, uh, which um, I'm now looking at what happens around the time of Soga in the 1920s, in which we have this odd movement in Japan, <coughs> excuse me, to strip um, a Pure Land tradition in particular of myth, that somehow myth uh, is destroying Buddhism. And of course, there isn't a big difference between myth and narrative, uh, and how you distinguish those two things is not clear to me at all. Uh, but anyways, first let's go back to the first point. Um, so there are, two, there are two particular kind of meta-narratives or two narrative structures that happen between sutras that are really striking to us. Uh, and as soon as I say, you'll know what I'm talking about. The first uh, is um, Devadatta. So Devadatta, of course, is the kind of villain th throughout most of the Buddhist canon. He's a villain in the Contemplation Sutra. He actually is the person who we are told whispers the words of poison into the ear of Ajatashatru in the first place. Uh, and he's the evil friend, the Akuyu, who turns him, uh, who you know, foments this kind of resistance to his father to the gets to the point of patricide. Um, and yet what happens in the Lotus Sutra? Suddenly we have Devadatta redefined by Shakyamuni as Shakyamuni's former teacher in his past life. And in fact, the Lotus Sutra itself was originally preached by Devadatta in another time. So we have a whole another mythic layer laid on top of the Devadatta narrative, and we have a completely different narrative now. And now Devadatta has been not only exonerated, but he now becomes the teacher of Shakyamuni himself. So talk about a, a reversal of fortunes. Um, and then there's no explanation <laughs> of what that means, how that works. Everyone is left to be, oh, 
it's a it's a true shocking aha moment, and um, and of course, very disjunctive and disconcerting, and inevitably you cannot come away with that without with, with, from reading that without feeling that wait a minute, there's something else here. There's some, there's more for me to think about. The other the other uh, kind of meta narrative that happens between sutras that's striking is the Adachasatru story himself, particularly. Um, for the Pureland tradition, uh, the one that Charlie um, read to you, and what happens in the Mahaparinirvana Sutra, the Mahayana Mahaparinirvana Sutra, in which uh, we are told for the first time, and of course Shinran was quite aware of this because he quotes it, that in fact uh, when Ajatasvatu went to kill his father Bimbisada, uh, Bimbisada himself was the person that actually instigated this kind of hatred. And why is that? So Bimisada, remember, and a bit like the, the opposite of Devadatta, Bimisada is one of the major supporters of Shakyamuni in his, in his whole career. And so when the son comes up and destroys the father, it's a shock not just to, in terms of humanity, but it's a shock to the whole Buddhist story itself. The very existence of Buddhism as a religion in some sense is dependent upon or relies upon or benefited tremendously from the support of Bimisada. Um, but in the Mahapandravana Sutra description, before Ajatasatru is born, Bimbisada uh, is moaning the fact that he has no heirs, and so he calls in a fortune teller. Many of you have heard me talk about this before, and says, what am I going to do? And uh, the fortune teller says, fear not, king. Uh, your wife will get pregnant. There will be a son, and I know who it will be. Uh, and the king says, great, great, you know, it's a, it's a yogi living up in the Himalayas, et cetera, et cetera. Tells him generally where we, I can see this person and I can see the karmic future and this is what's going to happen. And the king says, well, when is this going to happen? And, and the, sayer, the soothsayer says, well, that much I, I can't see. I know it will happen, but I can't tell you when. So the king says, my God, I'm an old man. This better happen soon or everyone's in trouble. There's no heir to the throne. The whole kingdom will fall apart. So he sends a... A uh, group of soldiers up to find this yogi finds him and says, "Great news! You are the next king, <laughs> and your next lifetime. The only problem is, um, we're kind of pressed for time here. <laughs> Would you mind sort of cooperating in this process and kind of ending things early?" And the yogi says, "You're out of your mind. I, you know, <laughs> don't be ridiculous." And they come back to the king and and, and explain this. And Bhimisada says, "I showed him every due respect." And what does he do? He ignores me. He ignores my request, not just for me, but for the nation. And he says, you better go back and say to him, do the right thing, or we have no choice but to take action. So they go back. They find him again. And he, and he sees them. And as soon as he sees them, he says, I know why you're here. <laughs> and they say, please, you know, uh, it would do, us a great, do the whole nation a great favor and end your life now so that we can, you can be reborn as a prince and therefore things things will continue as they should, and he says, I will not, and I know you will kill me, he says, but I, I want to make this vow before I die, which is that I will take revenge on the man who instigated this action, who is his father, right, his future father. So they kill him, he is uh, soon, there is conception, and <laughs> ten months later there is birth, and um, and so in telling this story, suddenly we have a whole another reversal of fortunes. Ajatasattu, who, like Devadatta, is the quintessential um, sort of evil character in the narrative sense. Now we have another narrative in which who's really to blame for this? Um, and 
And of course, in addition to that, we have the business of his mother giving birth on the roof of the house, because right before the birth happens, suddenly Bimbisada says, oh my God, I remember this whole thing. And of course, he heard about the, the promise, uh, the oath of, uh, of the yogi, and he says, have the birth on the roof, because then maybe he'll kind of fall down, and then if he dies, it's, you know, it's an accident. And so he's complicit again, okay, and he does fall off the roof, but he doesn't die, he just breaks his finger, and so, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So again, and, and then, you know, in Shinran, in telling this story, of course, is doing the same kind of thing. He's taking the two stories, and he's combining them in a way and saying, um, what does this tell us? And, and one of the powerful results of this, this, this uh, the way Shinran does this, is to say to us, things are ne not necessarily what we, they seem, even in the scriptures. We have, we have scriptures that speak to us, but we have to see this in a wider context, and suddenly, the person who we think Devadatta is, the person who we think Ajahnasatra is, may not be that person at all. Uh, and that's, of course, very disconcerting and very, and very powerful. And for me, this is when narrative becomes a myth. And when narrative becomes a myth, and of course, many of these narratives are myths anyway, um, then it kind of <coughs> transcends its individual context and can, have, and can move and have resonance and meaning in all sorts of different ways that we perhaps had not thought about this before. Um, now there's a, um, to go back to the, the earlier point I made about what happens in the, in the late Meiji Taisho period in Japan, you know, part of this process is that the European culture itself is going through a kind of rethinking about myth. But in many of the um, writings in the late 19th century and early 20th, um, late 18th century, uh, 19th century, early 20th century, you see a uh, myth decried as the enemy of science. Right? So we have rationality and we have myth and they're in opposition to each other. And this goes back, in fact, to, to the Greeks where we have logos and mythos. And one of the interesting things uh, in a book by Bruce Lincoln, he, t he shows that in fact the traditional European presumption was that logos was superior to mythos, right? Uh, logos was the rational, logical way of thinking and mythos was the, st the storytelling. But in fact, if you look at the earliest, back in the Homeric times, the way the words are used, in fact, most of the examples of logos are, are pretty negatively portrayed. That is, myth has a kind of higher authority in that logos is something people can manipulate for their own purposes. You can manipulate rationality and tell very uh, convincing logical truths to get your way, when in fact a myth transcends a situation and therefore you can't manipulate it as easily. And so myth had actually a kind of authority back then. But then it gets reversed as Logos was with Plato and Aristotle and the whole thing. Then we go very, very strong in the Logos direction. It's not really until the modern period that this starts to get reconsidered again. But Europe European civilization clearly struggling with this. Japan gets this. Um, somewhat secondhand, of course. There's no concept for myth in Japanese history. There's no word for it. Not to say that people didn't have myths, of course, and lots of narratives, but there was no word for, in Chinese or Japanese for myth. The words really invented, I'm trying to figure this out, but appears around 1898, 1899, um, and the first usages of the, there are different ways they try to represent the word myth. They come up with the word Xinhua, that most of you probably know. And then a very odd thing happens is the Japanese are absorbing um, the kind of 
Protestant, sorry, the kind of Protestant <coughs> anti-myth uh, movement that's happening in, uh, in this uh, late 19th, 20th century. So one of the interesting people in this story is Paul Karos, who D.T. Suzuki studies with, and Karos writes this book called The Religion of Science, uh, which is translated into Japanese in about 1898, 1899, I think. And Anasaki Masaharu is one of the editors of the translation. There we see the word myth very clearly used, I think, for, maybe for the first time. And in that, in the religion of science for Karos, Karos is, uh, is, and this is why Buddhism is great to him, is because it doesn't have myth, right? because Buddhism has rational truth, right? And so it doesn't, and therefore, uh, and Buddhism can stand outside the world of science, doesn't compete with science, and therefore, there's no conflict. And this is what he's, and so again, myth, the way Kyrgyz uses the word myth is wholly pejorative, wholly negative. Myth for him is very much the way people use myth in everyday English today. It's a myth, meaning it's a falsehood, okay? So, um, and when you get up to about 1920, we have two major works by Pure Land thinkers, by Nonomono Naotaro and Kanako Dae, which are criticizing the myth in Pure Land Buddhism. Um, Nonomono's work is called uh, Jorokyo no Hihan, I think, and um, Kanako's work is called um, yeah, Joro no Kannen. Okay. Now, this is Nishi and Higashi Honganji, one on each side. The result of these works, and what these works do is working with the concept of myth that has been wholly negativized already in the Japanese um, speech community at that point, is to ask how should we think about the Pure Land? Is the Pure Land purely myth, and if so, is, is this something that we have a problem with? So when Solga says, what does all this mean? How do I deal with it? He's, he's, we're getting a kind of existential um, search for for putting this into a context that he can make sense of. But I don't know when Soga wrote that, but I believe it's a little bit after Kanako's publication, but when Nonomura and, Ka and Kanako both published his book, within two years, both of them lost their jobs as university professors at Ryukoku and Okatani Daigaku, and both of them lost their clerical status as well. They were declared Ianjin, which is the worst thing that could ever happen. They're heretics, essentially. The church could not handle this kind of inquiry, in fact, uh, and Soga resigned in protest over Kanako being fired, okay? So um, Soga and Kanako both leave Kyoto. I don't know what happens to Noromura. Yeah, he sort of seems to disappear from history. It's, very, it's a very sad story. Um, and Kanako and Soga go back to northern Japan. And in a way, I think for, for Soga in particular, it seems to be actually a good thing. <laughs> he feels a little more free to open up and explore these things in even greater than he had done before. Eventually, Kaneko and Soga are brought back. Um, in the 40s, uh, there's a change of leadership and the church becomes more open to the idea. But in any case, um, it, it's just an interesting example of how narrative can become, in a way, kind of dangerous. You know. Uh, particularly if you, if you question, if you go through the process that Charlie was talking about and you do it too publicly at the wrong time politically when the church is feeling very insecure, you in fact can, um, can be seen as an enemy all right, within, within the community itself. Now today when we look back on these people, you know, 100 years after they published these things, they're heroes to us <laughs> because they precisely the first time 
people opened up the whole discussion in a kind of what we consider an existential way. Well, what is the pure land? What is Nembutsu? You know, what is my relationship to the Buddha? How does the white path really work? You know, and this is exactly the same thing, of course, that Shinran is doing in his time. And of course, we have problems of heresy at that period as well. Um, so this process is kind of, in some sense, natural uh, for everyone to go through. And I guess you might even say that uh, without going through something so disruptive, we're really not going to get to the heart of how the narrative is going to work for us. So that I would suggest that that disruption is, in fact, a good thing, however fraught it might be for your career. Okay. Finally, I just want to read one interesting <laughs> narrative from the Nirvana Sutra about Buddha nature. Um, and this is a story I've seen quoted elsewhere, and uh, it's just very um, compelling, I think. Okay, so in the, um, there are five, there's a section in volume one of the Nirvana Sutra where five parables are told about Buddha, how to understand Buddha nature. And one of the fascinating things about how narrative works in this sutra, and there's, of course, quite a lot of it, is um, the Buddha nature idea is a difficult concept difficult to communicate, and so it's, the, it's talked about it from a hundred different angles. And, uh, and many of these, of course, use narrative, and in a way, it's almost as if they can't explain it without narrative, so. But this is an interesting one. So there's five, I'll just read the second one. Um, in addition, good men, consider the story of a caring woman and her infant son who becomes, who had become ill. In distress, the woman sent for a physician, and when he arrived, he mixed together a medicine made of three things. This is always Indian medicine. Clarified butter, milk, and honey, okay? He gave the mixture to her to feed her child. Then the physician explained, after the child takes the medicine, do not give him your milk. You may feed him only after he has di fully digested the medicine. So the mother then smeared a bitter-tasting substance on her breast and said to the, her young child, my breasts are smeared with poison so you must not touch them. When the child became hungry, he wanted his mother's milk, but hearing that her breasts were poisonous, he pulled away from her. Eventually, the med medicine was absorbed by the child, whereupon the mother washed her breasts with water and called out to her son, come, and I shall give you milk. But at that point, the little boy felt hunger, and though the little boy felt hunger and thirst, what he had heard earlier about the poison prevented him from approaching her. Then the mother told him, it was only because I was giving you medicine that I used the poison. Now that you have fully digested the medicine, I have cleaned myself completely, so you may come and drink from my breast without pain or bitterness. Upon hearing this, the infant returned and resumed his feeding. Good man, the Tathagata is just like this. It was for the sake of saving everyone that I previously taught living beings to cultivate their understanding of non-self in all dharmas, sarva dharma anatman, okay? explaining that after they have practiced in this manner, they will have forsaken their egotism forever and thereby attain nirvana. <coughs> I taught the non-existence of self in order to dispel erroneous views circulating in the mundane world and revealed a supramundane dharma to replace it. In addition, I, I showed that worldly presumptions of self are fallacious and not real. In this context, cultivating the dharma of non-self is therefore meant to cleanse one's identity, just as in this parable, the, of the woman who smeared her breast with a bitter flavor in order to help her child. In like manner, the Tathagata explained that dharmas are all without self in order to lead his followers to cultivate emptiness. And just as a woman called her child only after washing her breast because she wanted him to resume feeding, I also chose this particular moment 
I also choose this particular moment now to expound the Tathagatagarbha. For this reason, bhikshus, do not be afraid. Like the small child who eventually returned to drink his mother's milk after hearing her calling him, bhikshus on their own should also distinguish the fact that the Tathagatagarbha cannot possibly not exist. Thank you very much, I am.